Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview Bible scholar Yako Gareke. In Ezekiel 20, the text where Yahweh himself says that he has given bad command to the people whereby they will not live, which presupposes that just because the command is divine, it is not necessarily good. If you like the show and want it to continue, please write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Yako Gareki. Dr. Yako Gareki is a Bible scholar working in South Africa. We spoke earlier about the philosophy of ancient Israel, but about halfway through, the audio stopped recording. And so I'm pleased to have Yako back on the show to finish our discussion. Yako, it's good to speak with you again. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed being back. Well, Yako, I really enjoyed our discussion as well, and one of the things we talked about was the different pictures of God that are presented throughout the Hebrew Bible, and in particular, I was interested about the fact that the Hebrew Bible sometimes seems to presuppose a moral realist theory of morality rather than the subjectivist divine command theory usually attributed to the Hebrew Bible. And I think this kind of thing is often missed by Christian apologists today because the God of the Bible, or maybe we should say gods of the Bible, are not the same as the God they argue for, which is usually the God of medieval perfect being theology. And perhaps it's that kind of concern that has led some leading Christian thinkers to say that modern biblical scholarship really renders the Bible useless for philosophical theology. So could you say a bit about that and who argues for this? What Christian thinkers think that modern biblical scholarship renders the Bible more or less useless for philosophical theology? Well, first of all, I think that we have to ask ourselves the questions, but what if the Bible is useless for philosophical theology? Maybe that's what we discovered. I mean, there's no guarantee in life that the truth is always good news relative to our position. So I would just like to say that well, I do not deny that divine command ethics is presupposed in some texts. It's just that the Hebrew Bible is not a philosophical textbook, and there's not just one meta-ethical view in the text. So you can expect, given the historical changes, a variety of unarticulated meta-ethical assumptions there are a few traces of moral realism, and they come in the following forms. The first of all is, is when Yahweh is called a good God, which is not in the form of essential predication, since a God in the ancient East was not assumed to be good by definition. You can call a God good or bad or merciful or just or unjust, depending on whether its character conforms to the moral order. So when a psalmist says that Yahweh is good, the fact that he can say that is because Yahweh is not good by definition, or a God in the generic sense was not good by definition. So whether a God is good depends on whether the God instantiates the property of goodness in the moral order. So whenever the text says that Yahweh is a good God, or loving, or so, or that his commands are perfect or good, there's always a reason given. They are good because they give life, they promote justice, or whatever. So this presupposes that goodness in divine command is not something that comes from the deity per se. The goodness is not derived from the fact that Yahweh commands it. It comes from the fact that Yahweh commands the kinds of stuff that 
with people generally associate with goodness and what is good for them is that whichever promotes life and justice and order. Well, in some texts. The other fact is that when Yahweh, like in certain confessions in the Hebrew Bible, is called good or merciful or just or whatever, it presupposes that gods are not necessarily merciful or just or good. And this is important because in, in the Christian monotheistic tradition, you have the fact that, as Thomas Aquinas said, that God does not belong to a genus. But in the Hebrew Bible, you have the words Il Elohim and Eloah, which not only come in a generic sense, which we capitalize as God, but also as referring to a God, where this is what, in Aristotelian terms, would be a secondary substance, or that Yahweh is a God, or a good God. That God is not a personal name. It's almost a natural kind, or in the ancient worldview of, of species. And the fact is that even in the later traditions in the Hebrew Bible, when there was a tendency toward monotheism, this generic sense was retained, which is an embarrassment for Christian philosophical theology. Because if you can call Yahweh a god, while in later philosophical theology, this was not a generic term anymore, because Yahweh's existence and his essence was assumed to transpire. In the Hebrew Bible, this is not the case. And that is why you, in Psalms 58 and 82, the gods can be judged, um, gods in the generic sense, whatever you translate that as. And you have in Genesis 18, where, when Yahweh has certain ideas, where Abraham can debate with Yahweh and say, ask, but will the judge of the earth not do what is right? Which presupposes that even Yahweh, as the judge of the earth, is subject to a moral order which he must do what is right, just as the human judge has to do certain kinds of things that the judge does not make the law. He enforces and applies and judges according to or relative to it. So in a sense, that's a metaphor for God, like a judge um, or a king. And in all the other ancient Eastern religions, the gods are subjected to the moral order and called good, and their views are called good or bad, depending on whether they conform. Which is why also you get in Ezekiel 20, the text where Yahweh himself says that he has given bad commands to the people whereby they will not live, which presupposes that just because the command is divine, it is not necessarily good, um, just because it comes from God, that even God can give bad commands according to the context. And you have also other places in the Old Testament where Yahweh commands evil spirits to do stuff and uh, lying spirits. And the thing is that in the Hebrew Bible, what philosophical theology calls maximal greatness is not what constitutes maximal greatness and perfect in theology in the Hebrew Bible. While there are many views presupposing the text, is not the same as what Christian philosophical theology presupposes. Because in the modern philosophical theology, it is presupposed that a god is only worshipful if it's good, and there's a certain view of goodness. But you have to understand that the concept of the good in the Hebrew Bible is different from the modern view of the good, and that what makes a god is not goodness, but power. And in the ancient worldview, a god was not only worshipful because it was just and fair, but because it was powerful. Right. Now, coming back to your question about why the Hebrew Bible is the problem for philosophical theology and who says that and where, I would just say that many Christian theologians, and I think the Australian philosopher of religion Michael Levine wrote about this, that much of analytic theology is actually populated by Christian fundamentalists who actually are not really philosophical in the spirit of philosophy, but are actually Christians with little training in biblical scholarship or theology who simply use philosophy and logic to bolster or do... Because much, much of Christian 
The philosophy of religion is actually watered down Christian apologetics. It's not really philosophy of religion. Mm-hmm. So w- what you have in people like Plantinga and even Nicholas Woltersdorf, especially in his earlier versions, but also even later and William Lane Craig and all these guys, what you have is actually people who are fundamentalist Christians and who are not really interested in doing philosophy, but using philosophy and because the view of the relationship between philosophy and religion is that philosophy is has to make room for faith. It's a handmade for religion. So what they do is people mm-hmm. like Plantinga, they they have written a lot in the Bible. And if you some of the most paranoid scholarship in philosophy of religion you find in people like Plantinga when he writes advice for Christian philosophers or when he wrote on scripture and you will find people like him and also Eleanor Stump who wrote an article on biblical criticism and philosophy of religion, which while it focuses mainly on the New Testament, what you see is that they have this fundamentalist view on what historical criticism is. Now, while in biblical scholarship, historical criticism is much more part of the modernist paradigm and much of recent scholarship focuses on literary and sociological criticism and social philosophy, Plantinga and Stump attack a form of historical criticism that was actually much more part of the 19th century. And as James Barr showed, the Old Testament scholar in his works on fundamentalism, that fundamentalist, their view of historical criticism is, is, is a very skewed view. They paint a caricature that it's all about that you assume beforehand that no miracles are possible, no prediction are possible, that there is no supernatural and so on. And so they think, and they, they use examples from the historical critical period, which where they use quotes out of context to show that this is an anti-supernaturalist view, that it's biased, and, and they say it's no wonder that they can't accept the Bible as the Word of God. But when Plantinga wrote in his chapter 12 on warranted Christian belief, and he writes on biblical scholarship and what he calls historical biblical criticism, you can see that any biblical scholar in mainstream scholarship, and because there's a lot of evangelical fundamentalist biblical scholarship, but in mainstream European scholarship, otherwise, the view planting I has of, of what critical biblical scholarship is, is totally a misrepresentation, because he really thinks that criticism is out to destroy the faith, or that it's almost a tool in the service of Satan. But the fact is that biblical criticism, like all literary criticism, what he sees as the problem is actually his own demonized version of what historical criticism is about, because it was always only an attempt to understand the Bible in its own context. Mm-hmm. It comes out of the Reformation, so he's reformed epistemology. Historical criticism is actually the consistent application of the Reformation principle of Scripture alone. So we do not allow dogma to decide what you may discover what the Bible means. And historical criticism was nothing other than to get back at the sources. And while there are shortcomings of the method, of course, the fact is that much of philosophical theology is, while they think they are biblical, they are not really, they are still doing the kind of philosophical theology where your systematic theology or dogmatic tells your biblical scholarship what the Bible may mean or not. So they are not really interested in discovering what the Bible may mean. They have their system of dogma, and they are interested in interpreting the Bible so that it conforms to that. So what historical criticism did in rendering the Bible useless was it discovered that the Bible does not mean everything the Church said it does, that this was its reinterpretation. And this is the crisis of modern biblical scholarship for philosophical theology, because 
to a large extent, philosophical theology ignores historical theology and the history of religion. And so biblical scholarship discovered that most of our Jewish Christian dogmas are not supported in the Bible and that especially the Hebrew Bible actually has different views of God than people assume the God of Christian philosophy is. Mm-hmm. So instead of accepting the Bible for what it is, people like Francis and so on tries to blame historical biblical scholarship for rendering the Bible useless because their first concern is not understanding the Bible, but making the Bible relevant and protecting their system. Well, Plantiga has taken a different route than many of his fellow apologists. He hasn't engaged in very much natural theology, arguments for God, but rather has developed something called Reformed Epistemology, which is an approach you've called fundamentalism on stilts. What is Reformed Epistemology, and why do you call it fundamentalism on stilts? Well, Reformed Epistemology is, you can call it a movement, but it's, it's people like Plantinger, Nicholas Wolterstorff, and William Alston, and they differ in their hermeneutics on the Bible and their views, so it would be wrong to generalize about what Reformed epistemologists believe. The fact is that while their philosophy can be very sophisticated, they are a product of what you may call the epistemological turn in philosophy of religion. Um, just like as in 20th century philosophy, there was a, what they, Richard Rorty called the linguistic turn. The last 20, 30 odd years um, in philosophy of religion, many conservative philosophers of religion focused on epistemology. And, and their concern was no longer what it was in mid 20th century when there was this concern with natural theology. But rather, there there came a concern not to prove that God exists, but to at least show that belief in God is irrational. So what that boils down to is saying, okay, we can't prove that what we believe is true, but at least you can't prove that we are crazy. And what Reformed Epistemology is, is partly the name Reformed Epistemology, I've just explained the epistemological focus, the Reformed part comes from the Reformed tradition, where you put scripture central and so on, and where, well, especially the Calvinistic, more than the Lutherist tradition, and especially in 20th century systematic theology, you have the influence of people like Karl Barth, where Barth was against natural theology. He was not so much against philosophy of religion, but he was totally anti-natural theology, and also in biblical scholarship, um, you have the biblical theology movement, and the move away from philosophy and philosophy of religion in mid-20th century, where many biblical scholars, even to this day, think philosophy is necessarily distortive, and they, they distinguish between Hebrew thought and, and Greek thought, or philosophical thinking and biblical thinking, and the, or the God of Abraham, and Isaac Jacob, and the God of the philosophers. And this anti-philosophical sentiment in biblical scholarship is there to this day, and it's part of what I'm trying to accomplish is to remove the interdisciplinary barriers because there, there is the option of descriptive philosophy of religion. Now, in all this, reformed epistemology is the outcome of this 20th century tension between biblical criticism and philosophy of religion. The problem for reformed epistemology, especially in, in its versions of Plantinger, where you have certain ideas where it's anti-evidentialism, and evidentialism is a view that something can be believed only if it's proved the existence of God, for example, and it's just a very simplistic way of stating it, there are various forms of evidentialism. But what it boils down to is that 
they are not into philosophy of religion because they think philosophy can lead them to God. So Their philosophy may be very sophisticated, but if you get beneath the surface, you discover that the reason why they are theists in their philosophy of religion is because they are first and foremost Christians. And if you look at their Christian spirituality, it is usually, despite no matter how sophisticated it can get in philosophical terms, it's actually fundamentalist in the view of scripture. And I mean, um, if you look at Plantinga's, who is perhaps one of the, the leading reformed epistemology, if you look at his views on scripture, it is as if the last three centuries of biblical scholarship never happened. And his, his, his philosophy, and he has contributed much to philosophy, and in a sense, he has a first-class mind. But what you see in Plantinga is a first-class mind being paralyzed by fundamentalist religion, because Despite all the sophisticated arguments he has contributed to in epistemology and metaphysics and the philosophy of religion, he is so um, driven by his fundamentalist hermeneutics that the only reason why he defends what he, the faith the way he does philosophically is because of certain assumptions, hermeneutical assumptions, on what the Bible is and means, and, and because he, he thinks he believes it. Well, he's a Christian first and a philosopher second, and is quite proud of that. Exactly, and, and the, the, the fact is that what is wrong with it is that his philosophy of religion ignores the history of religion, it ignores biblical scholarship, and 20th century, the problems of biblical theology, the pluralism in the Bible, the problem of history, the parallel to the ancient East and comparative religion and so on. And the whole debate in biblical scholarship he ignores. Yet his philosophy of religion is totally based on a two or three centuries old view in, in the Reformed Orthodoxy of what the Bible is, of what Scripture is, as, as an inspired system of inerrant proposition. And the fact is that he's his sophisticated philosophy of religion could not stand on its own two feet if his views of scripture were wrong. But the fact is that his view of what the Bible is um, is so outdated that while most philosophers tend to focus on his philosophy to discredit his views, I believe there's a much easier way. You can just show that the Sunday school biblical theology is built on, or, or the the, the really naive realists or fundamentalist hermeneutics that provide foundations for his philosophy of religion. And then you can see that, and this is why I call it fundamentalism on stilts, because actually he's just trying to make fundamentalism sound respectable. So you have all this philosophical jargon and intricate argument. And the philosophy is the simple structure, but if you look at the base structure, what is motivating all the philosophy is a view of the Bible, which is not only outdated, it's simply wrong. Well, that's pretty harsh on Plantinga, but you've, you've got more to say than that. You've also argued that the phrase Christian philosophy is something of a contradiction in terms. Why do you say that? Well, I, would, I wouldn't deny that Christians can be philosophers, but you have to understand what many varieties of Christianity is today. Especially in its more conservative forms, you find that in Christianity, it's basically like the matrix. It, it's a system, and the system has everything covered, and it protects itself in a variety of ways. The most hideous sin is not moral in the sense of what you do, but it's what you believe. The focus is on belief, on the cognitive dimension of religion, not the practical dimension. And what you have is that perhaps what is 
ultimately the greatest sin in Christianity is doubt. Um, because the, the the primary virtue is belief. You have to believe. And right. But there's a reason for that. And it might sound very virtuous and stuff, but actually it's hiding something. It's hiding a weakness of the system. And this weakness is also what makes Christian philosophy a contradiction in terms, especially in the form of Christian philosophy of religion, in, in, in many varieties of analytical philosophical theology, of which Plantinga and others are examples, people also in the UK like Richard Swinburne. The problem is here that in Christianity, the main thing is that you are forbidden to doubt the foundations of your faith. I mean, you can play with questions like, does God exist? Is Jesus, is Jesus who you think he is? But it's just play. You know, you can't really radically doubt it, because that would be the ultimate sin. And to, to open yourself to that kind of radical doubt would be, you can only do that if you are willing, in principle, to reconsider your views. The fact is that the system has such radical doubt as its arch nemesis, but also as the ultimate sin. So most Christians can't afford to engage in a radical doubt philosophy demand because in philosophy, it, it's not just about being skeptical or cynical, but, but if, unless you are willing to expose everything, even your most basic taken for granted assumptions to radical doubt, right. you, the spirit of philosophy is not really given its due. So the fact that in the Christian system, such radical doubt is actually sinful, and um, the willingness to pursue it to its limits is sinful. Um, makes it very hostile to the philosophical spirit or the spirit of philosophy where you are willing to discuss anything. Now, while Christian philosophers may pretend they're open to argue and debate and might invite atheists to prove them wrong, this is all a farce because they are not really interested in proof. And I think in some of the interviews with William Lane Craig, for example, I, I can't remember where it is, but there was one point where um, he was asked, what if Jesus' body was discovered? And it was a debate in the resurrection. And would he believe if um, um, that, that, okay, that his views on Jesus were wrong? If, if it was discovered that Jesus was buried somewhere and he didn't ascend or was resurrected? Basically, he would still believe. Well, Craig actually said that stronger than that. He said that if he had a time machine and he went back to ancient Palestine and saw that Jesus never came back out of the grave, he would still believe because the feeling inside his heart is stronger than even that kind of evidence. Okay, thank you. That, that's probably the source I'm referring to. So you can see what it comes down to. The, the invitation to debate in people like Plantinga and William Lane Craig is actually a force. And Anthony Flew, um, in the, the atheist philosopher of religion of mid-century, actually exposed this when he presented what he called the principle of falsification against the, uh, well, as opposed to the, the logical positivist principle of verification, which boils down to this claim that there is nothing in these Christians' view that they would accept as a falsification of belief. Now, if you pretend to be open-minded, if you invite atheists to prove you wrong, but you have decided beforehand there's nothing that you will accept as a proof that you are wrong, what are you doing? Um, why do you invite debate if, there's, if you have decided beforehand there's nothing that you will accept as a proof that you are wrong? So, for me, the, the, the problem with this kind of philosophy is that 
it's, it's, there's nothing to discover. There's no research. It's, it's only a defense of the faith. You already have the answers. You, you can never learn anything from anybody, really. What you do is, it's like the anti-evolution argument. I mean, even if, like, if somehow science could prove the evolutionary theory wrong, it would still not validate creationism. It, to prove evolution wrong is not to prove creationism right. Then you sit with, it's, it's like trying, if, if some theory in astronomy is proven wrong, you, you don't go back to astrology, you have to move forward. So even if evolution was proved wrong, and which you, you can't go back to creationism. So the thing is that these people, they focus on defending the faith against things like evolution and stuff, because they can't really validate creationism. There's nothing for it to do. So that is why most Christian apologetics or philosophy of religion is mainly negative. It, it tries to to discredit opposing views, to take the attention of the, the the problems with with its own views. I mean, if if there was no atheism to argue against, there would be nothing for Christian philosophy and religion to do because they already have all the answers. But these answers are actually useless for practical purposes. And the fact is that. And this is also why it's against what you might call the spirit of philosophy, is that there's never never any open discussion. They charge atheists with being close-minded. and But the fact is that they themselves are not really, really willing to reconsider their views. I mean, they can't afford to. And, I, and because I was there, I, I know I can understand that, and I have sympathy for that. But the fact is, you cannot really open yourself to radical doubt, not only because the system says it's a sin, but because you to, to to admit that your views might be wrong and psychologically you can't really afford that. Well, I'd like to go back to another topic that we discussed last time. Last time you said that atheists who were focusing on arguments for atheism were kind of missing the point if they want to win converts for atheism because the reason people stick to their childhood dogma is not because they haven't heard skeptical arguments, it's because they don't really know how to live any other way. And this is the way they've always seen the world, and this is how they see the source of purpose and meaning and morality in the world, and it would just be too hard to throw it all out and start from scratch, no matter what your arguments are. And yet some people, you and I included, do see the light uh, when confronted with the arguments. So do you have any idea why some people are eventually able to take their blinders off and why others are not, even when they're confronted with the same arguments? Well, I think the, the situation is complex. First of all, let me say that the thing religion does, in, in a very real sense, is it teaches you that you can't live on your own, that life without God is meaningless. Some people's definition of hell is God-forsakenness. And you are given a view of atheism where atheism is accessible, demonized. Many Christians can't distinguish between atheism and Satanism. And you have this view of atheists as immoral people who have no meaning in life, who can't find pleasure in life, whose view of the world is so bland and so devoid of interesting stuff and and purpose. And the view that is sketched of life without God inside religion is so scary. And religion so divests you of, of your life skills, of your thinking skills, and makes you dependent on God. We, we are told this is a virtue, depend on God for everything. Your, people think it's, it's a good thing when you can say you can't live without Jesus or without God. Yeah. Don't depend on your own strength. Yeah, this is really the truth for them. And my issue with most atheist literature, much of atheist literature, and uh, well, I, I think there's always a market for the kind of atheist literature there is. 
but there's a gap in the market. The gap in the market is that there's too little literature that not only gives Christians the, the atheist point of view or show them or try to show them why atheism, the arguments are better, but that takes the people from Christianity to atheism that in that twilight zone period in between. Because most Christians, even if they think atheists have a point, some atheists are in a sense so what I would call Christian atheists. They, they delight in obscenity, in shocking Christians and in offending them. And some Christians just think that, well, if, if being atheist makes me like that, I'd rather, I'd rather believe what I believe. Atheists can defeat their own cause. But in another sense, some atheists, they are naive in, in that they think if you just use reason to convince Christians why they are wrong, they will see the light and be converted to atheism. Right. When the, the, the fact is that and I, I myself believe that. When, when I lost faith, I believe if I can just show people how my thought patterns went, they would see the light. And that never happened. And I think you mature as an atheist to a certain extent that you believe, you realize that you can't. People, people, some people are more interested in being happy and finding meaningful, meaningful life than the truth. If, if the truth is not good news, many people don't want to know it. And there's no guarantee that the truth relative to your view will be good news. So the problem is that for many Christians, it's all about psychological survival. They simply don't know how to live without their faith. So even if they can see that there are problems with Christian arguments, and if, even if they see atheist arguments that may have less flaws or are more convincing or can show them what is wrong or right about views or science or whatever, they simply don't know how to live or find a life of meaning. Um, and because they have been so frightened that the atheist life, that they will lose their morality and, and that there would be no meaning or purpose, they rather stay in their faith because no, there's no book that provides guidance for the crossover. And, and in this crossover period that most atheist literature doesn't focus on, because it's, it's, it's really pretty to think that you can convince Christians to see the light without telling them how to live if they see the light. Is only doing off the work. Of course, some literature, there are literature that focuses on this, that, that guides people. It helps them to show that it's not all that bad, and, and it, it guides them in a nice way to losing faith. Because when you lose faith, you feel all alone, and you feel totally disorientated, and, and the transformation of consciousness can be absolutely bloody terrifying. This depends on personality. When some people lose faith, they see the light, and it's, it's immediately liberating for them. I don't know why that is. That was not the case for me. For me, it was very scary. It was very frightening. And you're always nostalgic for your faith. You want to go back. And there yeah. was not much resources telling me how to cope. Yeah. And I wished for that because I had the atheist arguments. I, I read all that, but it didn't tell me how to cope. And um, I think here that many people relapse into faith simply because they can't survive psychologically outside the faith because they've been stripped of all their skills. And I suppose... It was only after years that it became liberating for me. But I think what does it is, you, this is social psychology, and I, I once wrote a paper on what I call the Dardagin Christian Syndrome, and what another researcher, Yao, um, called in 1984, I think, called Shattered Face Syndrome. And that is the, the experience, and, and it also, much of the research has focused on cults and deprogramming from cult experiences and the trauma people experience psychologically when they leave a cult. But the social psychology and the theories of people like Festinger with cognitive dissonance show that when people are confronted with beliefs, 
um, or, or good arguments that actually prove them wrong. Rather than reconsidering their views, they are more likely to actually believe all the more in their own views because this is a way that like to protect itself. Especially if you invested your life in, in a certain worldview and if your decisions and your social commitments and your, and your relations and all your existential, your, your meaning in your life is so locked up with a certain worldview, then psychologically you, you cannot afford to change your mind on certain things. Right. Not because you can't see it, but because the price you have to pay of reorientation in terms of how you see the world is psychologically so scary that some people just can't do it. Well, Yaku, you've been pretty tough on religion, so let's flip things around. You also have some ideas about so-called atheist fundamentalism. To you, what is atheist fundamentalism, and what's wrong with it? Okay, well, well I think that in, in many ways, Christianity, even if, if we are not brought up as Christians, we live in a Christian culture, or, or in the West, it, the culture is mainly Judeo-Christian, right. in many ways, in even unconscious ways, and we have a lot of cultural baggage of this tradition. And the fact is that most people, the view they get of unbelief, they get from the Christian point of view of what it is. So when many people are brought up into a Christian family, their views of what it means not to believe is given to them by the church and the religion. And the view painted is that you will become a rebellious evil person who is immoral, who don't care about anything. You will become a materialist in your metaphysics. You will become totally naturalist, and you are actually a nihilist who, who is basically very bad. And the fact is that many people, when they lose faith or when they just rebel against the system, they are not totally freed from religion. They become the, the antitype that religion has told them they would become if they don't believe. So many people confuse freedom from religion with becoming that type of antagonist that religion tells them they should become if they don't believe. So in a sense, they're still part of the system. They're just at the opposite end of the spectrum, which for me is not freedom from religion. If you define your life view, it's simply becoming the enemy that the system, the religious system has told you you would become if you don't believe. You are still part of that system. And in a sense, you just live out a stereotype. You are still not free. Of course, movements like the New Atheism have moved a bit beyond that. They try to be socially and morally conscious, and they expose the problems with the Christian system, and they are not crude atheists. But for me, the problem with is that there's what I would call atheist fundamentalism, and that is, in terms of biblical scholarship, people like Richard Dawkins and so on, the way that they focus, for example, if they try to discredit religion by focus on the immorality of the Bible. I mean, there are so many better arguments for atheism than simply the immoral parts of the Bible, from the Bible, which you, which you can use against to discredit theism. And because, really, the Bible is not even Christianity's friend. One writer, Robert Carroll, wrote, or called the Bible, the wolf in the sheepfold, and he wrote that the Bible is also a problem for Christianity, and once you can look at the Bible from an anthropological perspective as an alien culture, you find that it doesn't even support Christianity or biblical Christianity. It's, it's nobody's friend, really. And many atheists, they actually miss the more interesting parts of the Bible because they so associate the Bible with the religion that their hermeneutics or their, their views of the Bible, is, is their atheism is fundamentalist 
in that they try to discredit the Bible using fundamentalist hermeneutics and the way they go about with the Bible and they have a simplified view of what is there and they, the way they discredit or cri- criticize it is, is, is still very much in terms of biblical scholarship and hermeneutics uh, based on fundamentalist assumptions about what the Bible can or cannot be. It's really a form of naive realism. And it, it's the same with philosophy. In much of atheism, you have a tendency to, to make your metaphysics a materialist and naturalist in a sense that much of modern atheism has not yet come to terms with the crisis of modernity. And, and in a sense, it is a form of Anglo-Saxon positivism that has ignored continental philosophy since Kant. There's too much optimism epistemologically in atheism, not in the sense that it can be wrong, in the sense that it, that theism might come back or return to haunt you, but in the sense that much of atheism is based on outdated modernist philosophy and philosophical assumptions, so that in a very real sense, you find that even in the new atheism of Dawkins, Harris, Nietzsche, and those people, their philosophical assumptions, and whatever their own scientific merit or demerit in their own field, the problem is that they, you have this kind of what Nietzsche would call a herd mentality, and you have this almost religious system where to be an atheist, you also have another checklist of a few beliefs you have to adopt. You have to believe in evolution. You have to believe in this or that. So that in a very real sense, while the dogmas of religion have been ditched, the same assumptions that you have to believe in something, that you have to believe a list of stuff in order, you have to belong to a group, you have to endorse these views, otherwise you are not really a good person, or you are crazy or whatever, and view that things are very simple in this sense. Much of atheism tends to be almost religious or fundamentalistic in its orientation, that it, it almost, again, focuses on belief, believing a few things, and belonging to a group with a us and a them, and... In a very real sense, this form of atheism, to my mind, is not really a free view because it defines itself but by what it believes is not true. Now, in this sense, in the sense that atheism is reactionary or reactive in, in that it, it, it does not so much promote a positive view of what is the case in as much as it focuses on exposing what is not the case. But suppose they, it, it, it succeeded in its cause and that religion, there was no more. Christian fundamentalism and no more religious persecution or craziness. What would atheism be? If, if you think of atheism as a world of life view, if, if there were no longer belief in God, then atheism would also disappear because its own, its own cause is related to showing why the lack of belief in God or unbelief in God is necessary. So, in a sense, atheism depends on the existence of theism for itself, for its identity. And suppose that there were no, was no theism, then the need for atheism to become something else, to become something more positive, constructive, that does not define itself over and against theism, but actually becomes a, a positive view that simply orientates itself towards life without any reference to God. That would be required. But for the moment, I understand that atheism is a necessary transitional form of criticism and ideology which um, is supposed to free people from religion, but I fear that people still have this religious spirit where they think they have to believe in stuff to give life meaning and you have to have this system of beliefs you have to commit to. You are not really free from religion 
if you are just dropping into another herd mentality where you need a system to believe in something before you can live your life. Well, what's the alternative then? What's beyond this reactionary kind of atheism? Well, I would say that there's something like an atheist spirituality, but maybe you can drop the term atheist and just, just focus on spirituality. Now, when I talk about spirituality, we can forget for a moment the associations with spirit and soul and all those religious or what you might call primitive conceptions of personality or the person. But even if you have no religion, there is no essence to religion or spirituality. No matter who you are and what you believe, you, you have to think about what do you think about life? What gives your life meaning? Now, in the Western world, we think that you have to, you have to fill your, yourself up with the right beliefs about what is the case. And your assumption is that you will be, ha- be happy and find bliss if you believe the right stuff about the world. And that you have to be very concerned with who you are and where you're going and where you're coming from. And you have to discover yourself and discover the truth and discover meaning. But I think in Western philosophy, especially since Nietzsche and otherwise a lot in Eastern philosophy and religion, you have the idea that be free and can will itself and you don't need all this baggage of identity and dogmas to be happy. We are still carrying a lot of assumptions about our religious traditions about what makes life happy and meaningful. And this is why many people are not attracted to atheism because it has ditched a certain sense of mystery in the world. And uh, there's a book called The Little Book of Atheist Spirituality where he distinguishes between spirituality and theism and asks the question of whether there can be an atheist spirituality. Now, while you might see this as still a sellout to religion or something, there is more to this life and to this world than humans can know. But when it comes to how you want to live, it's more like art than science. And your view of life, you don't have to be loyal to any view or to any concept of yourself. It, it can change through your life, and that's okay. And I, I think there's atheism in its modern form. is still a very young movement. And the religion has thousands of years in which to adapt itself and the system for it to improve. But atheism is a reactionary system that is relatively young. And it's still finding its feet, and, and to a certain sense, we are still learning how to, in a post-theistic world, how to orientate ourselves against life. And to a certain extent, atheism is still riddled with religious assumptions about how you go about finding meaning in this world and how to predict life. And I suppose once atheism comes to terms with developments in 20th century philosophy and, and realizes that even if throwing out religion and God and stuff doesn't mean that there's no mystery left, and I think since philosophers like Heidegger and others, that we, there will always be a remainder of mystery. Well, Jaco, it's been a pleasure speaking with you again. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very much, Luke. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing Andrew Melnick about physicalism. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. <laughs>